Well, we've been going through and going through and going through this little epistle of Jude. I'm sure you never imagined you could get about 20 sermons out of a 25-verse book, but it's really been good. At least it's been good for me. I hope it's been good for you. We're nearing the end here. We talked about, uh, you know, Jude's this little book sort of nestled between Revelation and Third John. Sadly, it's a book that gets overlooked or even ignored, and I think that's more the case as time goes on and as society sin- tends to uh, drift into more lawlessness. I that really should not come as any surprise to us when we consider the book's content, and then when we look at the reality of where our society is today. Jude's a book that calls the body of Christ to fight for the faith. We've mentioned numerous times that the thesis of the entire epistle is summed up in verse 3. Hope you'll have that memorized for life by the time we're done. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. But not only does Jude call us to contend, Jude also constantly points out the reality of judgment for those who apostatize, for those who are the wicked, the godless, And this is what our society hates, the idea of an eternal judgment, the idea of hell. Hell is not a topic that people really want to discuss today. It's simply not popular. And unfortunately, it's not just the world that doesn't really like the concept of hell. Much of the church has come to not like to speak of the reality of hell. Yet, the book of Jude references the reality of eternal judgment over and over again. We live in a world that more or less constantly shouts peace and love, acceptance and freedom. But of course we understand that what they really mean is we want to live however we wish without consequence. Sadly, the same attitude is found in large segments of the church today, no different than that of the world. It may be covered in flowery language. It may be marked by Christianese, that is, Christian vocabulary. It may be hidden by those who seek to appeal to religion, but like Cain, who we studied weeks ago, simply decide to worship in the way they choose rather than the way God expects. As long as you don't talk about hell or judgment, then they're happy with that sort of religion. The book of Jude is a hard book for those who just want to cry all is well. God loves us just like we are. You don't have to change. We don't have to seek God. We don't have to seek holiness. He loves us just the way we are. After all, He made us this way. We hear the phrase, I was born this way. Well, Jude disagrees, and from the beginning to the end, Jude speaks of the judgment that is consequence for all those who do not truly know Christ. So we rarely hear sermons on the book of Jude because we rarely hear of the reality of hell. I think in our current world, this is largely due the last couple decades to political correctness. Political correctness has truly gripped every facet of our society. Uh, We became starkly aware of this just in our own lives this past week. We were 
communicating with someone and they responded by telling us that the person's life partner was in the hospital. And so I thought, oh, life partner, that's really interesting. Well, come to find out it was the person's husband that was in the hospital, but political correctness has so infected this person's life that they couldn't even say husband. They had to say life partner. We mentioned this earlier just before the service started. Look at how many companies, private schools, and individuals have adopted things like Black Lives Matter or the gay pride logos just because if you don't, you may be viewed as opposition or non-inclusive. It's just not politically correct, apparently, for Oreos not to make a Oreo box with a flag on it. And if we do find those in the society who believe in an afterlife, it's generally one of universalism. It's the Oprah Winfrey, the Joel Osteen kind of religion that basically says everything's okay. Everything's good. You'll make it to heaven whether you worship Buddha or whether you're a Muslim or you're agnostic. Just be a good person. Just as long as you're a good person, you're okay. I have a dear friend who had the chance to speak with Joel Osteen once, and he asked him if he was ever going to talk about sin, and Joel Osteen's reply was, no, that's not something we do here. So, I imagine in those places the book of Jude never gets opened. But sadly, the political correctness doesn't just affect the Oreos brand or the Blues Clues or whatever else. It's really permeated its way into the church. Often it comes in the form of what one pastor, Vody Bauckham, calls the 11th commandment. Have you ever heard of the 11th commandment? The 11th commandment is, Thou shalt be nice. And it's not nice to speak of hell, so don't do it. It's not nice to speak of judgment, so don't do it. Obviously, it's not a real commandment. People don't like hearing about damnation. They just want their heartfelt needs met. And so this has led to the Saddleback Church style of evangelism, where basically you just find out what needs people have. And you meet that need and you call it evangelism, but it's worthless. It's nothing more than adopting worldly methodologies. It's nothing more than becoming just humanitarian efforts with little or no gospel at all. Most evangelism today doesn't dare bring up the reality of sin or the reality of hell. In fact, I'd be surprised if many evangelic or evangelistic organizations would allow the apostles to train their people these days. Certainly they wouldn't allow Jesus himself, and I am genuinely and thoroughly convinced of that. Jesus came preaching, repent, that is, turn from your sin, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We don't like that today. They want to avoid a deep conviction of sin. We don't want anyone to feel guilty. And certainly don't want anyone to fear hell. It's a sloppy gospel that we see in the church today because no one wants to offend the world around them. And they're offended when you call them to repent of their sins and avoid the day of wrath. And yet, this is what awaits all of those who do not have Christ. 
A gospel that doesn't include the reality of sin, the threat of perfect and righteous judgment from God, the reality of the substitutionary death of Christ is not the gospel of the Bible. It's just not. It's almost as though modern day evangelicals are embarrassed by the existence of hell and feel the need to lessen the impact of its existence. Or in some cases, we've been in churches that even make apology for what they read in the Scripture. God created hell, and He's the one that throws people into hell. I said that accurately. The idea that God doesn't throw anyone into hell, that people just choose to go there, that idea is ignorant at best and it's deceitful at worst. Matthew 10, 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him, Him being God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so we can't shrink back from the acknowledgement of the judgment to come, from communicating the reality of hell to those who do not know Christ. If there's no fear of hell, if there's no fear of judgment, if there's no fear of consequence to sin, then what reason does an unbeliever have to come to Christ? When we make little of hell, or we soften this existence, or even ignore it altogether, we basically enforce the world's view of a consequence-free life. I met with an elder of another church this week who doesn't even believe in hell. They've just gotten rid of it altogether. You're just annihilated. And so I thought, well, if that's the case, then why even preach Christ? Just let people live like hell on earth and then be done with it. They don't want to offend anyone with the reality of hell. We can't shrink back from communicating the reality of hell. In fact, we do a great disservice when we neglect the mention of hell. Too many Christians have become afraid of offending the unbeliever with the gospel of Christ. And that's preposterous. I mean, do we dare think that we can better present the gospel than Jesus himself? Who called people to repentance? Or the apostles, which all gave clear calls to repent and turn to sin? We cannot lessen the sting of sin. We can't arbitrarily soften the blow of the existence of eternal damnation. And there's nothing we can do or that we should do to lessen the offense of the gospel to those who are perishing. And the gospel is offensive. You can't make it less offensive. And if you're trying to make it less offensive, then you've left the gospel of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We preach Christ and we preach Him crucified. We aim to communicate to the sinner the reality of his sin against God. We want to communicate the subsequent judgment that ungodliness demands. And we want to communicate the good news that we have a Savior that will redeem all of those who believe in Him and the work of the cross. We can't leave any of that out. 
We don't need clever 10-step evangelism. We don't need fancy stories. We don't need to meet felt needs. We don't need humanitarian aid. We need to preach the gospel. We need to proclaim the gospel to call sinners to repent. Jesus says in Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, it says, Now after John had been taken in custody, Jesus came into Galilee. What did he come doing? Buying everyone cups of coffee and having nice conversations? No. It says he came preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus wasn't looking for a heartfelt need. He wasn't trying to find just the right time. He didn't wait until there was a sufficiently built friendship. He wasn't trying to relate personally before the gospel was given. And by the way, he also wasn't sharing the gospel. You need to get away from using that terminology. What was he doing? He was preaching the gospel. The word means to proclaim the gospel. And guess what? We preach at people. That's not a bad thing. It's what Jesus himself did. There's this really stupid idea in modern day evangelicalism that has bought into this thing that says we don't preach at people. That's 100% contrary to what Christ did. It's clear in the English language. It's even clearer in the Greek language. It's contrary to what the apostles did, and it's contrary to what we are called to do. Preaching the gospel is a glorious thing because the gospel is the power unto God for salvation for those who believe. We preach the gospel. Romans 10 13 and 15 says this, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him who, in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a, what? Preacher. A preacher. One who preaches the gospel. How will they preach, it says, unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the news of good things. By the way, we're all called and sent to go preach the gospel. We're all called to preach the gospel. We can't shrink back from calling people to turn from their sin and warning them of the judgment to come. They're certainly being saved from something. We can't leave out the something they're being saved from. Charles Spurgeon Affectionately called the Prince of Preachers once said this, and I, I love this, it encapsulates the reality of condemnation and the love for the sinner in presenting the gospel. Charles Spurgeon says this, Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, then let them perish with their arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there, unwarned and unprayed for. Well, this is the very warning of the book of Jude. Sadly, the focus on eternal judgment makes Jude a book of unpopular truth, but the reality of it can't be, can't be escaped. Do we have loved ones that do not really yet know 
of the punishment that's going to await them should they not come to Christ? Do we have co-workers who we've been afraid to talk about eternal damnation to? They're going to spend eternity there should they not come to Christ. I like that. Spurgeon says, let them perish with their arms around their knees imploring them to stay. We can't leave out the reality of hell. We can't shrink back from the truth of God's Word. And as we'll see as we open up the book of Jude this morning, Jude reaches back to antiquity, the very first prophecy ever to be given by a man, and that prophecy is one of God's judgment to warn those in the body of Christ and those who may be apostates who have crept in. If you want, you can go ahead and put a finger in our passage for this morning. It's going to be Jude 12 and, uh, sorry, Jude 14 through 16. But before we jump into that, let me just do a very brief recap of last week. We're wrapping up the end of the book here, and if you'll recall when we started, Jude couches this very weighty epistle filled with warnings and the reality of hell with assurance and comfort for believers. Do you remember that? Last week we were in Jude 12 and 13 where it says, These men who are like hidden reefs in your love feasts, and when they feast without you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, their autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars from whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. We spoke about how Jude compares these false Christians who have secretly crept in unnoticed to five natural phenomena. We went through those. We're not going to go through all those again, but it's worth noting that when Scripture repeats a theme or seems repetitive, that means we ought to take special note that there's something important, an important point warning to be made. And so Jude consistently speaks of the threat of false believers in the church, and he uses several illustrations, both apostates in the past as well as nature. And so he wants us to not make light of the dangers that false teachers present in the body of Christ. In fact, this morning, even we were just talking about how dangerous the prosperity gospel is and affects the church worldwide. And so we've been speaking of how having sound doctrine or just correct Bible teaching guards us against the influence of false teachers. If we know the Bible well, if we ask the right questions, the questions of context and grammar and history, then when false teaching comes, we're far more likely to be able to spot what's untrue and to guard ourselves against falling prey to these false teachers. And this is Jews' very pastoral heart, is don't be taken in by false teachers. And so now that catches us up to our passage this morning in verses 14 and 15. You can turn with me if you're not there already. Jude says this, It was about these men, who's these men, we'll get to that, that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds in which they have done in an ungodly way. 
of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, fault finders, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. It was also about these men, he says. Well, who are these men? Well, these are the ones in which Jude has told us have crept into the church unnoticed. These are the men that we've spoke about recently, the men who are like clouds without water, who are dead trees without fruit. They're pseudo-Christians. They're false teachers. And so here Jude reaches back as far as possible to demonstrate that God has always had judgment reserved for such men who seek to do damage within the church. Enoch, Enoch, the seventh from Adam. This is way back. So there was Adam, right? The very first man. Then there was Seth, and then there was Enosh, and then Kenan, and then Mahalalel, and then Jared, and then we have Enoch. Seven from Adam. This is even before the flood. Even before the flood, God had planned to judge false teachers. Of course, if we rightly understand, we would say from all beginning of time, God planned that to judge false teachers, pseudo-Christians, the ungodly. And He revealed it through a prophecy given by Enoch, which is referenced here in Jude. And so, now you might say, well, where can we flip to and see this prophecy in the Old Testament? That's a good question. You can't, because it's not there. It isn't there. It isn't found anywhere. It's found right here in Jude, and that's it. So how do we know that Enoch gave such a prophecy? Well, the answer is really quite simple. We know that Enoch gave this prophecy because Jude, who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said so. Right? And this is our record of that prophecy. So we understand that the Holy Spirit is the divine author of Scripture, right? And here, the Holy Spirit moves on Jude to include what was most likely an orally passed down prophecy by Enoch to God's people throughout the generations. And so this would have had to have been passed on by Noah, right? Because Noah and those with him were the only ones that survived the flood, and so this would have been handed down. But here... It's confirmed by way of the Holy Spirit through Jude as a real and legitimate prophecy. Well, this shouldn't be surprising as we understand that the Bible doesn't include everything that's ever happened, right? But it does include everything that God saw fit to give us for the Christian faith and practice. It also shouldn't be surprising that a man like Enoch would be given a prophecy like this. Well, why is that? Because Enoch, if you'll remember, is... One of the only two men in the Bible who didn't die. Not only did he not die, but he was taken to heaven alive. So we know of Elijah, right, who was taken, and Enoch was the other, both godly men who never tasted death. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Enoch. Very little is found in Scripture about him. In fact, what we do have is in Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. I'll just read it to you. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 
Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God. I mean, this was a man living in a time where the world was filled with sin. When men only thought of doing evil always, the scripture tells us, and yet there was God's man who was saved from that and who was taken. Enoch was faithful and walked with God, so it's not really hard to believe that such a prophecy would come from a man like this. And so the Holy Spirit confirms this prophecy as being true to us through the inspiring of Jude to reference it. But this is the earliest prophecy ever given by man. And it was on the coming judgment. So our passage here in Jude goes on to record the specifics of the prophecy from Enoch. And it says this, you can follow along in the passage. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. And to convict, we've read this, all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds. And that whole section is the prophecy in detail. Well, I want us to notice just a few things about this prophecy in particular. One is that he's speaking of the final judgment when Christ will return and judge all the ungodly. The holy ones here is most likely referencing holy angels. It's a pattern that we see throughout Scripture similarly to the way we see angels appearing in other passages of judgment. You see it in Matthew chapter 24, you see it in 2 Thessalonians, and there are several other places you can reference. Another thing to note here is the nature and purpose of this judgment. It's to execute judgment upon those who deserve God's wrath, the ungodly. These are all the people who have disregarded God's law. And here we have a very interesting little verb in the Greek. It says that the Lord is coming to convict and the word here means to expose, to bring to light. And so Christ is going to come back and he's going to expose their sin. And also mean to rebu- rebuke or prove guilty. This is going to be a public judgment. And the eternal punishment will be held. This is the final tribunal of Christ when he descends to judge the world And it will be a terrifying event for those who Jude says has long beforehand been marked out for this condemnation. That is for the wicked, for those who have denied the evidence of God and have rejected Christ. This will be their trial and they will be sentenced to eternal suffering. So we open this morning kind of talking about how society, we have a society now that despises the idea of eternal consequences. We talked about how our culture demands that every man basically be free to do as he pleases without consequence. Although that's even hypocritical in our society because if you don't agree with what the masses are doing, right, then you're no longer free. All of a sudden there's no more tolerance and no more live and let live if you don't go with the status quo. You become a sexist or a racist or a homophobe or a bigot. But God, when He comes back, will come back as an impartial and perfect judge and there will be no excuses. All of those who break God's holy law 
who are without Christ will be condemned forever. Without Christ, all men are guilty. But those who do believe in Christ and bear the fruit in keeping with repentance will be saved from His judgment. This is why we evangelize. Hell is very real. And we must warn people about this coming judgment. It's really and truly amazing how much the Bible has to say about hell and judgment and how little the Western church says anything about hell and judgment. I think some evangelistic strategies out there are no better than just pushing someone in front of a bus and sending them straight to hell. They meet all their needs. They have great conversations. They tell wonderful stories. They hug them. They give them help them with their relationship issues, and they never get to the reality of sin and hell. And yet, here we have Jude writing an entire epistle about the things many believers in our culture do their best to avoid speaking about, false teachers and God's judgment. Well, Jude continues on to give us the subject of God's judgment in verse 15, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly. And then he speaks of the sinful ways and words of these ungodly. He says that they're ungodly not just in their life, but in their actions towards God. And then he goes on to give another list of characteristics of ungodly. But before we get to that, before we get to verse 16, I just want to take a quick tour through a few passages from the Old Testament and New Testament on God's judgment because it is imperative that we do not forget the severity and reality of hell. If we're honest, and I know it's true for me, we get so comfortable sometimes in our own salvation knowing that we're going to make it that we forget what awaits those around us who don't have that assurity. And so from time to time, we need to be reminded of the truth and reality of hell. It's also important that we don't shrink back in warning others because we somehow think we'll have a better witness if we approach them in a way that is not offensive. Look, the apostles didn't sit around having ten cups of coffee with sinners until they had some special giddy feeling about when the right time to witness would be. They felt that the judgment was imminent and they wanted to warn people. We might think it's okay to take a year and a half to get to the point with someone, but we don't know that they have a year and a half left on this earth. Don't believe me? Think of all the people who died of COVID worldwide and how many believers are saying, man, I just didn't have a chance to get to them yet. Today we have a bunch of what I call even jellyfish. Christians walking around with no spine, afraid to preach about hell and sin. And the reality is it's because they're more afraid of man than God. They think they can evangelize better than Jesus Himself when He preached repentance. Christ never backed away from telling people to turn from their sin. And case in point, one of the most common examples that gets brought up is Jesus and the woman who was about to be stoned. And they say, see, 
God didn't condemn her. Well, the problem is that's true, but it's not the whole truth. Because if you read that to its ending conclusion, Jesus still, before she left, said, now go and sin no more. And so he still lovingly addressed and confronted the reality of her sin. So we see God's judgment and the reality of hell all throughout Scripture. So let's just do a brief survey of that. Now we don't, I don't have time to go into specific story behind each of the verses, but you can just know that the theme and the context of these verses is God's judgment on wickedness. I'll give you the references and we'll read a brief summary and you can go through them later. Genesis chapter 6 through 8. We won't go there, but God looks and sees the wickedness of man was so great on earth that he says every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God executes his righteous judgment and he floods the earth. He rightly and justly kills everyone on earth, only saving Noah and those with him. Deuteronomy 12, 50, 50, uh, Deuteronomy, sorry, chapter 28, 15 through 22 says this, But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe, to do all His commandments and His statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground. The increase of your head and the young of your flock. Cursed you shall be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of your evil deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blight, with mildew, and they will pursue you until you perish. Folks, this is God of the Bible. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust from heaven. It shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Ezekiel 20 33, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from your lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness in the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. Joel 3, 12 through 14. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And fortunately, many would listen to this and say something quite preposterous, like, well, that's just the God of the Old Testament. Well, God hasn't changed. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't had an identity crisis like many of our current culture. He's not schizophrenic. He doesn't have the pronouns they, them. Well, technically he could, but that's a different sermon. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for those listening to the recording. 
But he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's not just the Old Testament. But in case anyone is confused, let's look at the New Testament. Right? This is the covenant we live under. Let's see if God is different or if He's the same. Matthew 12.36, this is Jesus Himself speaking. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Paul in Romans 14, 10 through 12 says this, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of God to of himself to God. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15 says this, Now, if any man builds a foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man which has built on its remains, uh, if any man's work which he has built on its remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, and yet so as through fire. And so there's judgment on the work. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Well, this is the New Testament. It's a lot of judgment, right? If you remember, in the book of Acts, when miracles were happening, when the Lord was adding to His church daily, the church was growing under the grace and love of Christ Jesus had already been crucified. The Holy Spirit was given as a helper. And then we meet two very important characters that never get talked about in the church today. Ananias and Sapphira. Well, let me just read that to you. It's Acts 5, 1-11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Well, let me just give you the background here for a second. So the background is that the church had come together. People were willingly, on their own volition, selling property and bringing together and sharing amongst those within the body of Christ, whoever had need. This wasn't mandated. It wasn't compulsory. Uh, they just did it their own free will. So this is the background. So it says, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the proceeds for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion, of, a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter, this is Peter the apostle, said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart, you have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias collapsed and died. And a great fear came over all who heard about it. He could have sold the property and kept, if he sold it for 500 he could have kept $100 and went to the apostles and said, here's 400 we kept 100 It would have been fine, but he didn't do that. He lied, and God killed him right there on the spot. 
So we'll carry on. It says, Then the young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now an interval of about three hours elapsed, and his wife came in, not knowing what happened. Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for this price. And she said, Yes, for that price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out as well. And immediately she collapsed at his feet and died. I guess it wasn't just a little white lie, was it? And a great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard about these things. This is the New Testament. Praise God that He lavishes His grace on us and He doesn't do that on a day-to-day basis. But He could, should He choose. And of course, then we have the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6. Let me just breeze through the seven seals real quick. Then I saw, this is seal, uh, the beginning chapter 6 here. Then I saw the lamb broke, one of the seven seals. So this is the return of Christ. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying, with as a voice of thunder, come. I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. I don't think when Christ comes back, he's going to be having a cup of coffee with anybody. Here's the second seal, the seal of war. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and another red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. The third seal, a seal of famine. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not damage the oil and the wine. The third seal causes a famine. The fourth seal is the seal of death. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name of death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Well, this isn't the end of this, but you get the picture, right? Judgment is coming. And in case we make the mistake that many make today of Jesus, of the Bible being this sissified, westernized, Americanized Santa Claus, do whatever you like, Jesus, because God loves me the way I am, like what much of modern evangelicalism portrays, listen to the Bible's description of Jesus as He returns, because He doesn't come back with suki silk, blonde hair, And smooth hands with kind words. Revelation 19, 11, 16. And I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. 
His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one except himself knows. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written the name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a far cry from the Jesus many thinks is going to return. This is the Jesus that these men whom Jude says have crept in unnoticed will meet one day. Eternal judgment awaits these men of whom Jude says in verse 16, they're grumblers, they're fault finders, they follow after their own lust, they speak arrogantly, they flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage. For them, penalty will be severe and it will be everlasting hell. Folks, we can never hope to proclaim the gospel to evangelize well if we leave out the consequence and the weight of sin. If we leave out the reality of the judgment to come, this is what the world will face. This is what we've been saved from. As we wrap up this morning, I want to end this morning with two encouragements for us, for believers from this passage. The first is that we cannot shrink back in preaching the gospel to those who do not yet know Christ. And we have to include the reality of hell and the penalty for sin. It's meant to be frightening. It's meant to be severe because it is everlasting torment. Now let me just say this. This doesn't mean that there's not an appropriate way to communicate these truths. We don't need to stand, nor should we stand, in front of abortion clinic with ridiculous signs saying something like, murderer, you're going to burn in hell. That is not sharing the biblical gospel. That isn't the gospel at all. It's just being a jerk. But we can and we should stand in front of abortion clinic and tell them that the life, the death, and the resurrection Tell them about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We should let them know that what they're doing is murder and that because of their sin, they're guilty before a holy and just God. We should let them know that if they repent of their sin and they believe in Christ, that He will save them. That's the way to do it. In fact, God's providence, we have a chance to do this very thing this month. Because at the end of the month, there's going to be a gay pride festival here in Homer, starting at Bishop's Beach at 1 o'clock on the last Sunday of the month. It's an opportunity for us to truly love our community in Homer by going and rightly, in a humble, in a gentle way, a loving way, tell them the truth of the gospel of Christ and the consequences of their sin. And so I'm going to be out there 
So if you'd like to join me, you can do that, and I'd invite you to. It's an opportunity to love our community and Homer here. And by God's grace, maybe we'll see that he touches even just one. But we entrust the results to God. So that's the first encouragement. There's a right way to share, to proclaim the gospel without being a jerk. The second encouragement is this. And I want to take you back to the very first passage of Jude because this has been a very heavy, weighty sermon in Jude. Jude opens by saying, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. We remember that judgment is terrifying and that it's internal, but for those who are in Christ, for you and me who know Christ, Christ has already paid our penalty. This is not a judgment that we experience Christ, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He's paid the eternal punishment that we deserved. Romans 8, 1 says that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you need to know that if you know Christ Jesus, that there is no condemnation for you, Christ has paid it already, and yet many will pay that ultimate price in the last day. And this is why Jude is so emphatic on warning the church and bringing attention to the judgment to come. This is what we want to see people come to an understanding of and repent of their sins and be saved from. If there's no health, there's no condemnation, then there's no need for Christ. But there is a hell. And it's eternal torment and suffering. And the gospel is the power unto salvation for those who believe. Let's pray.